we are to be innovative and creative in this complex world where changes happen so quickly, we need to make people feel that they belong. We need to feel that they can be their authentic self at work and don't have to hide parts of who they are. Welcome everyone to Culture by Design. I'm Tim Clark and we have with us today Venka Fredriksson coming to us from Norway. Venka, welcome to the, the podcast. I'm just delighted to have you with us today. Thank you. And what an honor to be invited. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Are you joining us from, where are you, Oslo? I'm in Oslo. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Venka is the Senior Vice President and Head of Diversity and Inclusion at DNB, the largest bank in Norway uh, with over 10,000 employees. Previously, she spent more than 30 years at Accenture, having roles within consulting, HR, and as Nordic diversity and inclusion lead for many years. She is an inspirational storyteller who actively uses her life experiences to drive change and build a more diverse and inclusive world. All of that just says, we're going to have a very interesting conversation. (laughs) So, Venka, let's go back. Let's go back to your childhood and just tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what life was like. Did you grow up in a a rural environment, an urban environment in Norway? Give us a sense of of your childhood. So we go back to the 60s. I'm a baby boomer and I grew up in a little kind of a village, I would say, in the north of Norway fishing village and my father he had a foundry and he also was a fisherman and my mom she worked at home taking care of the kids she also worked as a secretary at the foundry and then in the evenings she cleaned offices and worked with fisheries and so forth so it was a hard life we were five kids four of us were born with a year apart wow in the 60s early 60s yeah, it was a struggle, you know, but I guess it was the same for everyone to make ends meet. And But a happy childhood. We were outside and we played and we had a, a great. But I also noticed that having many kids and, you know, it was a hard life. And I saw, especially for my mother, that it was a hard life being a mother, being a woman. And I actually told my mom quite early on. Maybe I was around eight years old. And I, I told my mom that when I grow up, I only want to have two kids mm. because I saw the workload and I saw the, um, the hardship. And I, I wanted to get an education and uh, study and, um, you know, live another life, have an exciting career. And so I, I come from quite, you know, working class background. And I was the first one to finish high school. My grandfather, he actually said to me that why... Why do you want to go and study? Because you're going to get married. That was his perspective. And my mom, she wasn't too happy about it either because, you know, the student loans and everything. But I I wanted to go to university. And I was the first one in my family to go to university. And, you know, I had no role models. I had to, you know, find my way through all of this. And for every semester, you know, my mom said, isn't it enough? And I said, no, it's not enough. And kept on working very hard. And I I was a perfectionist, you know, from the early days. I worked hard. I was very active and I helped out a lot at home. And and at university, I was there, you know, from eight to five every day studying. So, Venka, when you went to university, did you have to leave your village or? Yes. Yes. You did. 
Yes. And I actually also, I was an exchange student in the U.S. from 1981 to 1982, and that was quite exotic as well. But that was part of my plan to do something great with my life. I was very focused on that. So I did. But I, I left when I was, the second time I left, I was 20 years old and I went to study. But what you're saying is that even during that experience, your your mother would still say, are you still going to keep doing this? Right. Is that is that kind of what she communicated to you? Yes. And I, I think she wanted me to choose something more safe. And she was thinking of the postal services or something, you know, in the public sector so I could get a secure job. And I'm quite glad I did not because that was not secure at all. Mm-hmm. But I wanted something else. Where did that drive and that motivation and that vision come from? Because you said before, Vink, and it's a really good point. You set out on your journey, but you didn't have role models. And so talk about uncertainty, talk about the unknown, talk about going into the unknown foggy future. That's what you were doing. Mm-hmm. What motivated you to do that? Well, I think when I was 13, 14, I started working in a shoe store on Saturdays. And there was a woman there, an older woman, and she saw me and she said to me, Venki, you are special. And I was like, I am? Yes, you are special. And she talked about, you know, women and feminism and, you know, making your own career and the importance of that. So she was important for me. I looked up to her and she made me believe in myself. And um, there was also a teacher in high school. I wanted to become like her. I wanted to, you know, so there there were some roll-up models that I found, but it was not, you know, not in my closest family. So it was kind of, you know, for our kids, we I tell my sons, you know, you can become whatever you like. The world is at your feet. But it wasn't like that for me. I had to struggle a bit to do things. And um, and I think also that made me, you know, when I entered the university, you know, there were people coming from, you know, the right parts of the country that had academics in generations. And they were so much smarter than me. And I came from the wrong part of Norway, <laughs> you know. I was the first one. I had a dialect and I I wasn't cool enough. I wasn't good enough. And I think that's something that I felt all along. So I compensated by studying even harder. So Venka, I, I read one of the articles that you wrote, mm-hmm. uh, what, a beautiful, incredible, insightful article when you left Accenture after more than 30 years. And, you, and in that article, you talk about that when you started work, uh, one of the things that you did was to try to minimize or remove your dialect. Yes. Can you just talk a little bit about that? So was this a like a northern dialect? How does that work? Well, you know, I come from the north of Norway. When I grew up, like the minister, the lawyer, the doctor, they all speak the southern dialect where more people are educated and richer and more wealthier and, and all of that. And then coming into this... <laughs> You know, being a perfectionist coming from, you know, where I came from into this performance, very strong performance culture with this perfect, you know, perfect facades of people, high performing. And then to have this dialect, it just didn't quite match. And I felt that when I, you know, I didn't have a choice. I couldn't change my dialect because if this is who I am and this is, you know. And I felt that I really connected well with the clients. Because the clients were like me, you know, not all of them came from, you know, the south of Oslo, of Norway. So I felt that I really connected. But then I was told that 
you know, in order to come across as more professional. And I was, this was during my first year, you know, this is back in the days, this is 30 years ago, that I should change my dialect to come across as more professional. And it only made me use my dialect even more. And I don't know where that came from, but it just did. It just did because it had to. And did you find that that was a net benefit or was that a disadvantage? What, What were the consequences of that? You know, when that message was conveyed to me, I asked the person who said it, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you really mean when you tell me to change my dialect? And she couldn't even answer that. So I don't know. It was somewhere in there, despite struggling to not be good enough. There was a backbone in there. And, you know, there was probably some stubbornness as well. But that was, you know, um, my integrity, my authenticity. I, I couldn't sell it. Yeah you know, just to be a better performer. Yeah. And I think, you know, being a perfectionist coming into this consulting business with a performance system that I felt all it did was look at what was wrong with me, what was not good enough about me. It was not focusing on what was right about me, what I was good at. And of course, over the years, you know, this changed, but that was, you know, and and I, I say that having these kind of, which were, I guess, quite typical of the years that we are talking about in the corporate world, it made champions into losers. And that was why I was used to being the best and then suddenly I was only average. And I spoke about it. Let's talk about this transformation then, Venka, because you came to Accenture in 1991, way back in 1991, and you spent more than like 30 and a half years there. Yeah. And what I hear you saying is that it was initially, it was expensive to be yourself. You couldn't bring your whole authentic, genuine self to the job, to the role. And so you made adjustments to a certain extent, but you were fighting, you were bucking, you were pushing back against those forces. And so you witnessed kind of a revolution in the organization, but you were also a catalyst and a change agent in that revolution. Uh, Help us understand how that happened. Because I I find it, it's, it's very interesting. You say at the beginning of your professional career, it was expensive to be yourself. At the end, it was not. It was very different. Let's talk about that a little bit. I think that was what I discovered in this, you know, where we all were supposed, you know, we were monitored and assessed the whole time. And I just knew that there were times I knew that that would come back to me, but I still did things. And I tried to fit in. I tried to work so hard to be good enough, but I never was good enough. I was always, you know, average or even even below. And I, I could feel what it was doing to me. And it was making me feel small and stupid and afraid. It was not bringing out the best in me, you know, and it it made me sick. It made me, you know, I I wasn't thriving the way I would think, you know, leadership should be all about making people thrive. And it was all about, you know, this is the consulting. This is how we are consultants. This is what we do. And I, I didn't fit in. I tried to fit in. I worked hard to fit in. And I, you know, I, I wasn't good enough. So then I started, okay, let me be vocal about this. Let me own, let, let me talk about how I feel. And I remember, you know, being in meetings and I said things and I could see people raising their eyebrows and I saw it. 
And I thought, oh, God, I must be so stupid. You know, I was, you know, revealed as not being good enough. And I remember, you know, and, and even today when I see some of the people I worked with back then, I still feel stupid and little and not good enough. Mm-hmm. But I did feel that this did not bring out the best in me. And I was like, why can't we not be more human? Why is it not room to be who we are? Why is it not room to have a bad day? Why is it not possible to talk about certain things? Because we all, you know, want to be perfect. Yeah. So what happened though? Because at the beginning of your experience, your vulnerability is being punished to the extent that you don't want to show it. But gradually that changes. And by the end of your career, at least at Accenture, your vulnerability is being rewarded, not punished. So something's going on in the organization and the organization is saying, we've got to change this. We've got to change our culture. We've got to change the way we interact. We've got to change the way that we, the way that we validate and value each other. So you went through that. What happened? I think that what happened, you know, even from the early days that I did pay a price because I tried to be perfect, but I was sick a lot. I got, you know, back problems. I got all kinds of infections. I had pneumonia three times a year. I got everything, but I just kept on going, kept on, you know, living on autopilot and not asking myself what was happening. And of course, as such, you know, people saw that I was struggling, but no one said anything. And so I I tried so hard. I tried until you know, there were periods of sick leave for a week or so, and I had to change projects. So, of course, it was not uh, very promoting for my career, but I struggled with that. And then I came to a point, and the thing was, at the age of 37, I had kind of ticked off the things that I wanted in life. I had, you know, a great education. I had a wonderful career. I worked for the coolest company. You know, we had a house, we had kids and all of that, and I was going to enjoy it. But then something happened. And when your body has been, you know, talking to you and you refuse to listen, it starts screaming at you. And that's when you get, you know, anxiety, panic attacks, depression, you know, serious back problems, serious pneumonia. It was like it stopped me. And I remember the last days I went to work, I actually throwing up before I went to work. I went to work. And I had back problems and I I just yelled, screaming, getting up, doing the work. And then one day I just ended up a few days later sitting in a chair and feeling that I'm about to disappear in myself. And that's when my husband said, Venka, you have to see a doctor. You need professional help. And and I went to the doctor and I was diagnosed as a burnout perfectionist. Burnout perfectionist. So you hit the wall. You finally hit the wall. I hit the wall, yes. Okay. And at that point, I didn't know, you know, that, that it, it meant three years of sick leave. It took me 10 years before I could work full time. I was actually on 50%, you know, disability and I had two small kids. And I thought that I would never, ever work again because the hard disk was full and the batteries were flat and uh, yeah. I was lost. This is a big question. We could tackle this for a long time, but what did all of this teach you about inclusion and diversity? And how did you take those lessons and apply them in your professional role? Yeah, and I, and this was at the time, you know, go back to year 2000, and there was no one had a mental health but me. 
we didn't talk about this. Mental health was just total taboo. And I was the case. I was the one. And I know that I was not alone, but we just, you know, if, if you started talking about people and you, you know, so where's Peter? And then suddenly they became quiet. You just realized that, okay, Peter burned out. So he left. So the great thing is that I got into a very, you know, I experienced exclusion the hard way because I was a failure and everyone, you know, it was, I was exposed as a failure. And I also, I had to take a look at my life as to what is important to me. What kind of footprints do I want to leave, leave behind? Why am I here? How do I want to be remembered? And out of that, I found my purpose and my voice. And I decided I'm going to own my story. I'm going to own it and I'm going to share it. So then when I came back after three years, and this was at the time when it was after the dot-com center was about to downsize with 300 people. And there I was, you know, and I didn't know what kind of a resource I was. I knew that I was probably dead within consulting, but there I was. And I openly shared my story with my leaders. I told them and I used words that made them really uncomfortable because I talked about anxiety and panic attacks and, you know, feeling like a failure and how much I cried and, you know, all of it, how lonely it had been. And the thing was that I had, you know, really bold leadership uh, within Accenture in Norway and they wanted me to talk because no one had done this before, even though they were uncomfortable. So what happened was that I was, you know, asked to share my story to all the leaders to all the employees. Then I started talking to clients. Then I get on stage and on conferences because there were not many people talking about their failures or, or life being vulnerable. It was seen as a weakness. But I saw that by sharing stories, I connected with people's hearts. And I also started working in HR and I knew that I was not alone in this. We all have a mental health. And someone said to me, you know, I've been there myself, but it's great if you can front this. So I did. And, and this is really, you know, this is where my voice for inclusion and we have to be, you know, whole people that we, you cannot separate our private lives from what we do at work. It all connects and life happens. And if I am to be a robot at work, I will not give you my best. Because I'm, I'm not being authentic. I'm not being, yeah. We tried really hard to compartmentalize our lives, right? To hide. Um, but the pandemic made that impossible because there was what you might call forced personal disclosure. You couldn't even control it, right? Uh, we'd be in a virtual setting like this and my kids are running in the background and crying and this is me. This is my life. And do you, I don't know about you, Venka, but I, I saw people change during this process. At first, they were embarrassed. They were inhibited. There was a lot of anxiety. They, they couldn't believe it, but it was this forced disclosure. But after a while, as we moved through, okay, here's the first year, people started to, that became normalized. People settled into that and they said, hey, this is me right? Now, I think that that has, there have been some tremendous benefits that have come from that as we have been able to rehumanize the workplace in many ways. Did you experience that? Yes. And I, I remember so vividly because, you know, first it happened, we were kind of, hey, what's this? And then we discovered these 
greens that you could put behind yourself in this, you know, Accenture provided us with these designer homes or whatever, yeah. you know, and then we started having fun with these. But then at the end of the pandemic, they said, oh, remove the background, remove the filter, just show us your trash. And we have seen that, you know, on television as well. You know, you see people, chaos in the background, but we all have that. It's human. And I feel that this has connected us. And seeing, you know, top leaders, you know, with laundry on the bed and just, you know, like everyone else, it makes us, I think, more included and connected in a way. Well, it's refreshing to a certain extent, right? It reveals your humanity. And when you try to hide it, but then it comes out, it's refreshing because we already knew it. And so thank you for joining the human family. Thank you for being you. Okay, so let's come back to this. You are a mother too. And I'd, I'd really like to understand how your experience and your role as a mother has influenced your understanding and your uh, the way that you apply diversity and inclusion. Yes, I, I'm a mother. I'm a proud mother. And I had these, you know, visions and dreams of, of two kids that I was supposed to have. And then it turns out that we are not able to have kids, you know, biological kids. So we decided to go for adoption from Colombia, South America. And in that process, I was looking at all kinds of kids, you know, ages, colors, hairstyles, everything, and asking myself, could I love that kid? And I was really opening my heart and I could love them all. And then, you know, we had two beautiful kids from Colombia. They came to us as little babies just some weeks old. And I think most of all, it learned me about, you know, the unconditional love that you have for your kids and how you want to protect them and make the world a better place and hope that it will treat them well. And then they grow up and, and you, you know, because they have brown skin color, you know, and, and in your communities and in your schools, and then they, you see that they experience bad things because of that, like, microaggressions and racism and and you see the pain you see how they hurt and it was shocking because as a white person I think that this doesn't happen here but of course it did it happens in our schools in our streets and I think that made me you know it just made my commitment and my purpose and my passion even stronger and it made me, you know, speak up. And I, I think I became in school like the mom from hell because I left everything and went straight to school and said that, you know, we cannot use these words and we have to work with, you know, building an inclusive culture and this is not acceptable. And it's a very wide area that we live in as well. So what this gave me was an insight into, you know, topics or issues that I normally would not have as a white privileged person. And that has been something, you know, that I can use in, in my professional setting as well, because having seen that pain of not fitting in and not belonging and constantly being asked, you know, so where are you from? Where are you really from? Seeing the looks that my kids get, it just made me fight even stronger. And then in Europe, in the workplace, we have not focused on ethnicity as a topic or race because of the you know the second world war and the sensitivity of the topic and we do not trace or track race and ethnicity it's illegal in fact 
So we said, okay, let's focus on cross-cultural and learn how we are different and celebrate Diwali and things like that, but not talk about the real issue. And then when, you know, the George Floyd killing and also the Black Lives Matter movement, we said, okay, let's use this. We have a, a momentum now to use this uh, time to start talking about racism and microaggressions and, and how important it is to be anti-racist. And of course, having the experiences I had, I think I could be more credible because I, I've seen it myself. I've seen the pain and we did and with great support from you know, the US, Accenture in the US and, and in the UK, and also understanding that Norway has been a very homogeneous country. I, I remember in the early 70s when the first person from Pakistan came up north. So, and things have changed, you know, we are so much more diverse today. So, so it gave me, gave me that voice to, I, I, I think, be credible. And because I, I have not experienced, but I've seen, I've witnessed, I bear witness. And then, you know, so, so that has been one thing. And then when you think, okay, so this is what, what I have. Uh, and then one day, you know, and I also been, you know, the mom who said to my kids that, you know, love is love and born this way. And then suddenly my, my kid comes out and of the closet and identifies with the LGBT community. And I was like, okay, this, this was a bit, you know, despite being, you know, working with these topics, I experienced 15 minutes of despair because I thought, okay, there's so much diversity here now with ethnicity and with all kinds of other issues and being adopted. It was hard. And then I decided, okay, what can I learn from this? How can I make a difference? How can I, you know, really, you know, make a difference? Because this was a topic that we didn't talk about in, in Norway at that point. It was seen as private. So I decided that I would become the best proud mom in the whole world. And I did. And I learned a lot. And I challenged my, you know, because I, I realized by just talking about it that this was not, it was seen as private and very, very sensitive. And, you know, I, I actually say that I'm paid to make people uncomfortable with topics that I talk about, because we have to talk about these things in order to be comfortable. So based on that, I, I decided that I would be the best proud mom in the whole world. And I really worked very hard to put LGBT plus on the agenda in Accenture, in the Nordics, and in the Norwegian work life. And I really have done that. So it's been an amazing journey. And of course, if I had not had that experience, you know, I, I couldn't be as credible as I had. So you know, life happens, you know, you know. but I, I've chosen to embrace it with love. And another way that also, you know, being an adoptive mom is that we've always known that there is a biological family on the other side of the world. And my, my youngest son, he always said, I want to learn Spanish so that I can go back and, and, you know, meet my biological mother and tell her that, you know, I'm not angry. I'm, you know, I'm good. I'm fine. So in 2019, we reconnected with the birth family and we had the most amazing meeting. And the birth family is a part of my son's life every day now. Wow. And we have two mothers, wow. two mothers in his life. It's the mother, mother me and mother in Colombia. And we talk and I, my going into this was I chose to have an abundance mentality that there can never be enough love, you know, for our son that we share. So he has both of us in his life. So Benka, how did you do that? How did you embrace the biological mother and to be inclusive when it would have been pretty easy to be resentful? That could be difficult for a lot of people. They had always been a part of our, our lives because we always had photos and, and talked about 
Colombia mom. And, you know, for one of them wasn't interested, very interested, but the youngest one was always interested and, you know, had a plan about this. And I just, you know, these are young, poor women. And I was a, you know, white privileged woman, a lot older. I'm not in a position to judge anyone for, you know, giving up their kids. For I might have done the same thing myself. I cannot say anything because I haven't been in their shoes and lived their lives. So I just chose love. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's such a wonderful thing that we are together in this. And and I'm, you know, there can never be too much love, really. Mm -hmm. So my my son, he has everything in his life. And and that is a blessing and such a gift. So, yeah. It makes me think of, we go back and forth from personal experience to organizational life and organizational experience. And we toggle back and forth. And those two domains influence each other. And I think about organizations that are trying to become more inclusive, Mm. but I don't think I've ever seen one banca that got there through compliance. I don't think I've ever seen a single organization that became more inclusive based on compliance. They had to get to commitment, not compliance. Mm. I see a lot of compliance and yet then we just hit the wall. We're we're not getting there. And so- Based on your experience, how do you cross over from a compliance mindset to a commitment mindset? How do you do that? For example, you just said, well, I decided to choose love when it came to my children and their biological mothers and and the experiences that we've had. How do you cross over? Because I think there's a lot of people that want to cross over from compliance to commitment, but they they may not even know how. And I hope, you know, I can be of inspiration, but I I also, and I also been very open about that. I have my biases and I've made all the mistakes in the book when it comes to inclusion and diversity, but I'm open about it. I can share, you know, I've asked all the stupid questions myself. I can struggle with topics myself, but I always try to say, okay, what can I learn from this and be humble? Yeah. And ask questions and, and, you know, say that I'm, because so many people, when it comes to inclusion and diversity, they're afraid to say the wrong things because it's so easy. And and then it's much easier just to be quiet. So I, I think by just, you know, trying to inspire, trying to, I don't know, it comes from the heart. And when I meet people, I try to, you know, there are topics where we disagree, but we ha- always have to have this respect for each other. That there are topics that are difficult because there is, yeah. but always try to understand and be humble. And I've been very fond of, of you know, the, the seven habits of highly effective people where, you know, getting to know another human being is like walking on holy ground to really try to understand them and, and just really understand how they think and, and be respectful and then take it from there. You know, coming into a new organization, what I've done is that I've tried to connect with people that can help me, that can be change agents, because it's lonely to have my role. And yes, I can be, uh, you know, very passionate, but there are good days and bad days. And I need more people to create the movement. And one thing that's been really interesting in my new job, because I was, you know, I was 58. I am 58 and I'm proud of it. And uh, people, you know, I I really thought that career-wise I was dead. And I started to feel that I was taken for granted, that I stopped getting praise. And I was like, what's this? You know, I've never been better, never been more relevant. I've never been stronger, more confident. The kids have moved out, you know. So I 
applied for a new job and I got it. And the one thing that's interesting, I think, in, in my new role is that they have not been used to people sharing or showing the vulnerability. They, they never experienced that before. And I have gotten so much love and respect that I, I never expected to. When I can, you know, share how I felt like a failure and I felt so stupid and alone and how I wasn't good enough and how I was rated poorly. And, and that really connects with people. And that's why, you know, I often say that together we are less alone. I never thought of it as being rewarded, but I read a bit about you and it makes so much sense. That's exactly what I feel. And that's exactly what, what has happened. And that's such a beautiful experience. And I often say that, you know, when I can show my vulnerability, other people can show their vulnerability. Yeah. And then together, we are less alone. So, Venka, though, how did you, you're an extremely confident in showing and sharing your vulnerability. How did you do that? How did you gain confidence to do that? Was it just by doing it, through doing it? What happened? Therapy. I don't know. No, uh, well, I, I think that what I went through with the burnout, it was so severe that I felt that I was totally broken. And, you know, I didn't even think at the lowest point that I would survive, not because I, I didn't want to, but because everything was so difficult and I was so lost. But then I started to rebuild myself and to answer all these questions as to what is important to me in life. How do I want to be remembered? Why am I here? What do I want to be recognized for? And it was never about doing a career in consulting. It was about making an impact, you know, whether it was for one individual to make them feel better about who they are or whether it was, you know, making a change, you know, um, at work. It was to make people feel more included. And I guess that because I had experienced so strongly what it felt like to be excluded as a burnout, you know, and, and also observe exclusion when it came to other you know with my kids I think that I I um I just shared and then I shared more and and uh, I have felt embraced by love for doing that what I'm hearing Vink is that your burnout experience was crushing but it was also clarifying because if you have a a clear sense of who you are and what your purpose is then I think people pick that up very quickly and that's why when you're interacting, with your colleagues today, you are a source of inspiration. They, you build rapport very quickly. You connect very quickly and it's not superficial. It's very real. It's very genuine. It's very authentic. And you're able to accelerate that process that sometimes would take uh, years or maybe never even happen at all. Do you have any advice or, or tips for people in the workplace and how they can build that sense of connection and belonging faster and more effectively than, than maybe they have done in the past? I think it all comes down to, you know, psychological safety. And if we are able to create a, a space where people can be authentic and can make mistakes and can, you know, that's also, you know, been a huge part of the leadership development trainings that we've had that we, you know, we are to be innovative and creative in this complex world where changes happen so quickly we need to make people feel that they belong. We need to feel that they can be their authentic self at work and don't have to hide parts of who they are because we know that when people feel, you know, belonging and, and psychological safety, 
then they will open up and share their perspective. Then they will, you know, share what we hire them to do, you know, actually, and, and not be afraid and, and make mistakes and, and experiment. And some of it will fail, but that's a part of, of being innovative. And then I have seen that if I can share my vulnerability, then, you know, maybe it can encourage other people to try to do the same thing. And I was actually having a, a fireside chat with one of my new colleagues and he shared his story as well. And then he said after that session, he had had four conversations within a week with other of his colleagues in his team that wanted to share, you know, their stories. So, but it, but it's all about that psychological safety that we have that in place. And yeah. Well, if there's one big takeaway that I have from this conversation, Venka, well, there are many, and you've shared so many insights, but one that really stays with me that's really gotten my attention is sharing your story. I can't stop thinking about that. And also owning your story. And owning your story. Owning. Yeah. Because when you own your story, I think it's, it's Bene Brown who says that when you own your story, you also get to write yeah. the ending. And I've done that. Well, and you're unapologetic about it. You're so willing and anxious to share that story. And it just has an inspirational and encouraging influence on others immediately. And so I, I, I want to thank you, Venka, for being willing to share your story. As we conclude this conversation, um, do you have any advice that you would leave for listeners out there? You know, live your life the way you want to be remembered. And also remember that you are good enough. You are enough. Well, thank you, Venka. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for this entire conversation has been an act of vulnerability for you, but you're teaching us how to do it. So thanks for being a role model for us. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on the Culture by Design podcast. Be sure to subscribe and listen to new episodes every week. And if you'd like to see more of the work we're doing, go to leaderfactor.com.